understanding how the world works. Science is a bit human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Okay, well, thanks everyone for coming. Sorry about the technical difficulties, but welcome to the first Beer with Blue Marble Space Institute of Science of 2012. Uh, we've got a bunch of people here. We've got uh, Sean Domingo Goldman, Dr. Sean Domingo Goldman, uh, going to give us a seminar about how baseball blogging can save the world. Uh, but Sarah Walker, Dr. Sarah Walker, is going to kick things off with a beverage introduction, and I will remind you that. Of course, with any adult beverage, you should abide by the laws of the region in which you live, which means for the United States, you must be 21, and for the United Kingdom, 16, and um, other places may not have an age. So, uh, respect your local laws. Um, 18 in Canada. Okay, we'll get a comprehensive list going, and then we can end the show with all the drinking ages around the world. Sarah, why don't you get things started with your beverage? Okay, um, so I wish you guys could see the picture on this bottle because it's kind of cute, and I bought it because it has an alien face on it. Uh, but it's Roswell Alien Amber Ale, and it's from Sierra Blanca Brewery in New Mexico. And it has a really cute little disclaimer on it here. It says, you are holding the ale that Uncle Sam has been trying to keep under wraps for 50 years. Finally, you can take the alien amber experience and join the multitude of believers. This is your mission. Good luck. Um, and apart from being, you know, all alienly and clever, uh, it does taste pretty good. Um, it has two different types of barley in this particular amber ale, and um, it has a smooth, malty ale taste and no hot bitterness. So I recommend it. It's difficult, I think, to get outside of the state of New Mexico, but you can visit uh, their brewery's uh, website at sierrablancabrewery.com. I don't know if they have a uh, thing or not, but... I am planning on making a trek to New Mexico so I can get some new beer glasses from them in any case. And I also have something on here that looks really cool, which is a chili, uh, roasted chili pepper beer. Um, so I'm planning on trying that out at some point. But it's very delicious. I highly recommend it. And so today it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sean Domingo Goldman as a today. I'm sorry about the dogs in the background. <laughs> Um, he is currently a postdoc at NASA headquarters, and he is very multi-talented, being a blogger at Bullish Tales Blue Blog, and um, also at Blue Cubby Blue, and he is also a researcher in astrobiology, and today he is going to tell us about how baseball blogging can save the world, which I'm very excited about hearing. Well, thanks for the introduction, Sarah, and uh, I, I'm really excited about this. This is something that's very true to my heart. It's a bunch of things that are true to my heart, actually, baseball and blogging and statistics, and I'm also going to talk about astrobiology a little bit. And, and the goal that I'd like to get across, the thing I'd like to get across today is two things. What does baseball blogging have to do with astrobiology uh, and, and the blue marble that we all live on, and how can it save the world? How can it save the blue marble that we're on? And the, the place I'd like to start on this conversation, or in this conversation, is a question that I often ask myself, and I think a lot of people in academia ask themselves, which is, why are we here? And I don't mean that in the existential sense, why are humans here? I mean it in the sense of, why am I a researcher in academia? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Uh, there's lots of other things I could be doing with my life. Why am I doing this? Or another way to think of it, 
is from a government perspective or a taxpayer's perspective, why do we give money to do what we do? We're all very passionate about astrobiology and our research. Why is it that we get to follow these passions, uh, uh, usually through taxpayer-funded research? And the answer to both of these, in my mind, is communication. Uh, you know, astrobiology, it's not curing cancer, it's not building bridges, it's not really solving climate change on its own, although sometimes some of the problems that we discuss are related to climate change. What we really do, the, the intrinsic value that we have to society, in my opinion, is we do things that are interesting. And not only do, do we do things that are interesting, but we, we do research that is interesting, and that research has the same toolkit that some more important problems like climate change. So uh, it, it, it basically the... It's just as if we get to do these things because the public is interested in them. We get to follow our passions because we're doing research of something that's cool. But it's not just cool. It's also using the same toolkits that we would use to adjust, address topics like climate change. And that is really, really powerful. Uh, because, And this is where baseball comes into play. And I think baseball gives us a really good analogy for how we can use things that people are passionate about to teach them a little bit about science and the scientific method. So the place I'd like to start is uh, just on the first handout, uh, there's this graph. And what the graph shows is it's the number of news stories and it's also the number of Google searches on the two graph lines for two different topics, two different search topics. One of them is uh, NASA and the other one is baseball. And as you can see, they're, they're roughly equal. So baseball's a little bit higher. There's seasonal trends to the baseball data, and the reason for that is baseball has seasons. It peaks in the summertime and around the World Series, uh, and there really isn't that much talk about it in the wintertime, except around this one or two-week period when lots of trades and free agent signings, signings are happening. But the point is that baseball gets just as much, and I would argue more public attention from this metric, than NASA does. And NASA is amongst the most interesting of the sciences. Um, and, and so baseball is something that is people are interested in and, and you know I'm using a data argument because we're scientists but you don't really really need the data for me to, to make that argument convincingly you walk around town you see people wearing baseball jerseys uh, people go to games uh, one one thing I, I, I realized that we just had the Iowa primary this week the average attendance at a major league baseball game throughout almost every stadium in the in the league throughout the United States is greater than any vote total that any of the Republican primary candidates got this week in the, the 2012 Iowa primary caucus for the Republican Party. So in other words, all of these people that showed up in Iowa to vote, not one candidate totaled more votes than the average attendance at your, your run-of-the-mill Major League Baseball stadium. So people care about this. They go out and spend a lot of time and spend a lot of money on baseball. So people are interested in it. Now, how, how do we translate that interest into lessons about science and the scientific method? Because if, if, if people are just interested in it, it it's not going to save the planet, right? We need to find a way to translate what people are interested in into lessons that are important for society. And so the, the place I was, this, this takes us into a little bit of a history lesson on Base, the sort of the science of baseball. And there are some books out there, and one that's really good if you're, if, if you're into physics is called The Physics of Baseball. Uh, but more to the point, it's not just about the physics of like how the ball travels and, and, and how curveballs operate. I mean, that's part of it. But really, what's really at the forefront is that there are a lot of data in baseball. There are a lot of individual events. Those events each produce their own, um, each, each is essentially its own data point. 
And those data points are collected and collated and analyzed to death by millions of fans all over the planet. And there are traditional statistics that have been used to determine who is the best player in the league or who is going to be the best player in the league next year. And these things have been done sort of throughout baseball history. However, about uh, a few decades ago, there was a man named Bill James that started thinking about things in a much more rigorous fashion. He started asking very fundamental questions, like, what wins a baseball game? Uh, what causes, and, and when you score in a baseball game, it's called a run. And, and so he started asking questions like, what causes runs to be scored? What are the things that correlate most to success in this sport? And he didn't ask these questions and then start hypothesizing or speculating uh, based off of some traditional standpoint. What he did was he went into the data sets from all these years of, of data that have been built up and, and these millions of data points and started applying statistics and the scientific method to those data sets. And he started analyzing them very, very rigorously in that way. And the answers that he came up with were very, I don't want to say counterintuitive because once you see them, they're actually very intuitive, but they were very much against many traditional axioms in baseball. And ever since Bill James started doing this work, there have been a number of things that have happened that go against sort of the standard story in baseball. And this has set up a very interesting um, conflict. And that conflict is between something that I think as scientists we are all very familiar with. On one hand, you have people who are very tradition-oriented, who think that it's always best to, for example, sacrifice the batter to move the runner one base forward and closer to scoring. But then there are people who say, I don't care what the traditions are. If the data are telling me that something is false, I am going to believe it's false. And, and this is the group in the community that's sort of arisen out of the work that Bill James started decades ago. And this is one of the places that I think baseball provides us an excellent analogy and an excellent, I want to say almost practice ground for talking to people about things that we have data on that they might not necessarily believe because of tradition or because of biases. Um, and, and so, for example, climate change, for example, evolution. These are both places where people bring preconceived uh, uh, conclusions to, to very, very important questions like how does biology operate on our planet and how has, it, how has it changed over time? Questions like what is happening to our planet right now as a result of the activities humans are doing and how is that going to impact our economic future as a civilization? These are questions that are very important to society and to these questions people bring preconceived answers, sometimes biased by money, sometimes biased by ideology, and sometimes biased just by the fact that they think they know what's going on. And so what, what, what happens in baseball and, and what, what has happened in baseball is, for me personally, it's been a place to try to figure out how to break down those barriers that, that come with these preconceived ideas. And one of the things that's very difficult about this that I've, that I've noticed, and I've, I've sort of noticed it as a trend between all of these different places where these barriers need to be broken down, is the difference between top-down top down data interpreting versus bottom-up. And what I mean by that is, if you look at people, for example, that don't believe we landed on the moon, that believe that all of that was a hoax perpetrated by the United States government, they start off with the conclusion that that is the case. And everything that they do, every, every data point that they see, they interpret in a manner that's consistent with that conclusion. Whereas the scientific method 
goes the other direction. We, we, we might make a hypothesis, but if it's inconsistent with the data, we change the hypothesis. We change the thing at the top. We don't change the way that we're interpreting the things at the bottom. We hold those to be true except for when there's clear errors in the data. And I think this is something that baseball has, it, I, I want to say it's really, really doing an excellent job of bringing this lesson home to the public. Because what's happened is, over time, Bill James started off sort of fighting against conventional wisdom and, and publishing things that were basically heresy to, to anyone who followed baseball and, 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 and had these axioms to be true, like it's always good to sacrifice the runner, you use batting average to determine how good a batter is, and you use ERA to determine how good a pitcher is. And over the years, people have seen not just how good the data are at explaining these things and how uh, changing your hypotheses can do a better job of explaining the data set, but how successful certain teams and certain franchises in baseball have been when they implement these things. And so there's two other things that happened after Bill James got, got this. So that's sort, of, that's sort of the overarching parallel that I'm drawing. And there's, two, there's a couple specific things that have happened recently or fairly recently to baseball statistics that I really think show the power for how they can be used to bring these, these messages to, to people who would not otherwise believe them. The first is there was a book published called Moneyball, which just recently became a, a blockbuster movie this past year. And Moneyball was about a franchise, the Oakland Athletics, that was not competitive financially with some of the, the, the teams from New York City and Boston. They just didn't have the gate revenue or the television revenue. And they needed to find a way to succeed despite these lower payrolls, these lower salaries that they could apply to the, the product on the field. And what they, had, what they essentially decided to do was find market inefficiencies within the, 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 the pool of baseball players, how they were analyzed, and how that translated to how much uh, you were going to expend on obtaining certain players, right? So every play, every team essentially has a budget. Some budgets are bigger than others, uh, and some budgets are much smaller than others. And the Oakland Athletics had to find a way to maximize their relatively small resources to maximize the product on the field. And the way they did that was they started applying these sabermetric concepts. Oh, and I, if I use the term sabermetrics, that is uh, SABR, stands for the Society for the Analysis of uh, Baseball Research, I believe, or Society of American Baseball Research. At any rate, that's the acronym. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a professional society, and uh, sabermetrics is sort of the, the, the catch-all term for doing baseball statistics. Um, so sabermetrics, these, these, these tools that Bill James and others have developed, were applied by the Oakland Athletics. And the Oakland Athletics, despite having a much lower, lower payroll, were extremely successful and extremely competitive uh, it, it, against teams that had much higher salaries. And this totally, well, the Oakland Athletics did this, and then the book was written, and this totally revolutionized baseball. And now the Oakland Athletics went from being sort of the lone wolf out there that was really going against baseball traditional uh, techniques for analyzing players to now they're having trouble competing again because all of these other teams, including the ones that had higher salaries, are now employing the same things that the Oakland Athletics were doing 10 years ago. So that's one point. And now that's really powerful because two things happened there. One is there was a popular book written that showed how powerful this was, and eventually a movie. So you're really getting good exposure of how these scientific principles of, of data analysis and hypothesis-driven analysis are, are really powerful. But you also had a very, very public demonstration about how powerful these techniques are to, within the sport itself. And people now take sabermetrics. I don't want to say as a as a reality, but 
it is it went from being this like fringe thing that a bunch of nerds were doing in their pocketbooks and on their computers to something that serious general managers running baseball teams are expected to do uh, in most cities across the country. Okay, so that's that's sort of the history of, of, of where that's gone. And then the most recent thing is blocks. And this is this is something else that I'm going to draw a parallel to a little bit later. One of the last thing that sort of happened with baseball research is is it started off with Bill James essentially writing a bunch of yearly manuals that were like the things he was thinking about that year. And he would he would publish it himself somewhere from the middle of the country, I think like Kansas or something. He had a mailing list and he'd mail it out like once a year. And that was how baseball research, the, the frontier of baseball research, progressed for decades. And it's actually not too dissimilar from a lot of the ways that academic peer-reviewed research progresses or used to progress. Like you, you would write this paper, you'd think about it, you'd, you'd, you'd make sure it's perfect, and then you'd send it in, and it was set in stone for eternity the way you sent it out. And you might get a couple people that are respected peers to review it before you sent it in, or you would hopefully get a couple peer people that are in your community of peers to review it before it was published. But that's about it. There wasn't... It was a fairly static document. There wasn't a lot of feedback on it, and and it was it, could, it tended to be a little bit slow. Well, Bill, after Bill James was doing that for a while, what happened was a lot of people, because they're interested in science, because they're passionate. I'm sorry, they're interested and passionate about baseball. They started doing this on their own, and they started doing it on the internet. And that started with message boards, but it's evolved into a very, very, very competitive business where people are blogging not just about baseball, but about the statistical analysis of baseball. There's a series of websites that do this and have their own blogs. There is constant, constant improvement of the metrics that people use to look at the sport, and it's evolving on a weekly or monthly basis, not even a yearly basis anymore. These things are evolving extremely rapidly, and the reason is there's lots of people actively engaged in the research in their spare time, and they're doing this through the tools that we all have available to us now. So in other words, we've gone from a sort of more traditional publishing although it was independent and wasn't peer-reviewed. So slow publishing process that Bill James was doing on his own, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, to an extremely modern scenario where people are giving real-time peer review to the things as they're being published. And it's not even a, the, 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 the model that we would have in an open-access peer-reviewed journal that's online. It's actually a step further than that. It's more like a blog. Right, and actually much of the research on baseball statistics happens through blogs. You'll come up with a new idea for analyzing baseball in a certain way, you'll post it on a blog post, and you will get instantaneous feedback within the comments of that blog post. And if there's really good feedback, you can change the blog post itself and change the research in real time or write a second blog post that explains how you changed your analysis. And this, to me, is I think baseball has gone to a point where the peer review of the research within the sabermetrics community is actually more advanced than it is in almost any science because it is both reviewed by more people because you're not just going and asking three or four, in the case of astrophysics, one or two peers to review your work before it gets published. You essentially publish it without any review, but then it gets publicly and rigorously constructed and can be changed as a result of that criticism, and it essentially has a wider base of, of peer review. And it's a faster base of peer review. So it's both faster and it's more thorough. So th these, are the, these, these are sort of the different revolutions to, to how baseball 
analysis has operated. And I think there are a few lessons that we can take as scientists from this uh, that, that I think, would, if we all take them to heart, would make the world a better place. Um, and, and, and specifically, it's the blogging thing that I think is really the, the part that we really need to master. So one is, is it picks up on that last thing I was saying, is I think right now it's great that we have these open access journals that are coming online uh, and the online journals that, that, that are coming online. But I think a step better than that is that's sort of the current revolution. I think the next revolution has to be going to a place where you can have real-time comments on works of scientific research. Um, and I think blogs, baseball blogs in particular, are a great, great example of this. The one other place that I think is really at the forefront of this is analysis of polling data for the purposes of predicting the outcome of uh, major elections, particularly the presidential elections in the United States, get a lot of blog attention. And a lot of models have been developed to accurately predict the outcome of these elections. And, and there's a lot of intense, rigorous peer review that's real-time going on on these blogs. But the other area that's a good analogy for this. That's one lesson, is I think we can do a better job utilizing modern technology and modern communication tools to get better peer review that's both more efficient and, and that has more people involved in it. The second lesson is I think that baseball has provided an example of the power of hypothesis-driven science, of making hypothesis Having it explain the data, when it doesn't explain the data, changing the hypothesis so that it fits the new, the new data that you're, you're observing. And coming up with tests for the hypotheses based either on the data you have or the data you can obtain. And that, it's been really, really successful in baseball, as you'd expect it to be, because the scientific process is always really powerful. Sometimes it takes some time to work, but it's powerful. It's, you know, it, it, it's in my mind the best system we have for understanding the way our world works. And it's the best way we have of understanding baseball. And I think people are starting to see that. And then the third thing is, I think we as scientists really need to do more communication about things people are passionate about. And this is why I think not just it's good to be an astrobiologist, but why it's good as an astrobiologist to be out there communicating our science. And it's why it's good to be out there, if you're interested in baseball, to be out there blogging about baseball. Or if you're interested in politics, blogging about politics and, and poll data and things like that, because every example we can give the general public of how effective the scientific process is, that's another reason for them to trust the scientific community and the scientific process on matters that are inherently important, like climate change. And, and so I think baseball is a great example of the power of communicating science to the public on things they're already interested in. We don't have to get, we might have to get them interested about climate change, but we don't have to get them interested in things like baseball because they're already interested in it. We don't have to get them interested about things like astrobiology because they're already interested in it. Um, and so this is, this is both the reason why I think astrobiology is important and the, the, the use it as for society. And then this is, this is the last thing I'll say. I think I'd love, I'd love to open it up to discussion is astrobiologists, I think, have a responsibility to communicate, and it follows from everything I've been saying, and, 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 it's, and I see this even more for the last year, is you become really conscientious, you become really conscious about what are we doing with taxpayer money? Are we spending it on the things that taxpayer money should be spent on? And why should taxpayer, be, taxpayer money be spent on a particular activity? And in my mind, astrobiology research, whether it's privately or publicly funded, is funded because people are interested in what we're doing. 
And that means two things. One is that that means we have to communicate our results back to the public because they're essentially purchasing information from us. We get to do what we get to do, which we really enjoy doing, because other people want to hear about it. And so if we don't go back to the public and tell them about what we're doing, we're not doing our job. And then the second thing is this sort of uh, agreement that we have with the public to communicate the things, uh, the results of our research that is only really getting funded because they want to hear the results of the research. Beyond that sort of responsibility, I think there's also an opportunity for us to convey things the rest of the scientific community really needs communicated, which is the power of the scientific method and the power of hypothesis-driven analysis. Um, so that's 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 sort of the rant. This, I've never really done this this particular little spiel before, so I, I really love the opportunity to to give it to this group of of uh, people, um, and I'd love to have a conversation about it. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear. And I, I have specific examples if people want to talk about particular examples of how uh, baseball thinking has changed. But I didn't want to get too bogged down in the details unless people want to hear about them. Well, cool, Sean. Thank you very much. That was. Really enlightening. Um, so I guess I have a question regarding the uh, review process. Like in the blogosphere, the review is open to anybody, but isn't there a danger, like in the scientific field, that people who are opinionated about a subject but might not necessarily be an expert on it might also contribute reviews that could not be useful, frankly? Well, you know, the way we think about peer review is that we think about it as a gate, right? We think about if you, you know, I, I submit a paper, I get somewhere between one and five reviewers, depending on the journal I'm submitting to, to say thumbs up or thumbs down. Yes, this can be, it, this is the best paper I've ever read in my life, please publish it immediately, which is how all my papers go, I assure you. Or the opposite, which is, this is the worst work I've ever seen, it should never see the light of day, and I frankly don't know what this person is doing in the sciences, right? So, um, we, we think of it that way as, like, as, as should this paper be published or not? And if that were the case, I think that would be a huge concern of giving non-experts those, that power of peer review. But what happens is when you, when, you, when you go on the blogs, it can be frustrating at times to debate people that aren't experts or that are really stubbornly beholden to a particular viewpoint. But what happens is because this is more of a conversation, you know, you, you post this blog and someone will, will, can post a, a whole response, piece on that blog or another blog, or there, you, more, more, more often what happens is there's a comment in reply. So there's comments below the blogs, and they'll say, your work is wrong because of X, Y, and Z. Now, if they're not an expert, but they happen to be right, I would argue that's a good thing that the non-experts are, are involved, right? Because, again, you're, you're broadening that base, and there's a, there's a greater chance of catching mistakes the more people you have looking at the, at the work. You know, non-experts can be right, even though they're not experts. The danger, I think, Sanjoy, you're referring to is what if the, the non-expert gets on just totally doesn't understand what you're talking about and says this is wrong for X, Y, and Z, and the, the logic just isn't there. Like, what, what their, 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 their critique is fundamentally flawed. Well, if that happens, you respond to their comment, and you say, no, that's not exactly a good critique because here's why. In the same way that you would if a reviewer brought in ridiculous and bogus complaints on, on a paper you were, that was subject to peer So, the, that, that concern actually isn't too big of a deal to, from my perspective. The thing that I, I think I'm a little bit more wary of, having been sort of in the trenches in a bunch of blog wars about ways to analyze baseball and predicting whether or not the Chicago Cubs, my particular favorite team, would be good in a given year or not, is that the danger that I've experienced is that people, A, are really passionate, 
and B, the, the, the commenting system is, off, is usually anonymous. And so the vitriol and the level of, the, the, the tenor of the debate sometimes is very poor and I think not constructive. And you can waste a lot of time wrapping yourself around the axle debating something with somebody that's just moving the goalpost every time you, 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 know, you bring new data to the forefront. And that, that, that is, that's difficult, it's frustrating, it can be a waste of time. That's a, that, that is one of the downsides to the, the system. But I'm not too concerned about non-experts being involved because if the non-experts are right, then it's a good thing they were involved. And if the non-experts are wrong, hopefully the conversation uh, will reflect that. And usually, in my experience, it does. Usually, if there's one person that doesn't know, have any idea what they're talking about, and they keep, you know, hammering at you with ridiculous points, you aren't necessarily convincing them that they're wrong, but a lot of times you're convincing everybody else that's reading the conversation that this person is being really ridiculous and doesn't know what they're talking about. Sean, to kind of follow up on that a little bit, um, what do you think about some of the, the EGU, European Geophysical Union uh, journals, which a lot of them are open access, and as part of the review process, they open up the paper to sort of a, a, a blog-like comment form where I think anyone can read the paper and then write a comment, and that's not the entire review process, but it's part of it. Um, I've never yeah, been part I, of I this process. Yes. I think stuff like that is wonderful, and it's wonderful for a couple reasons. It, it, right now, I think that, that 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 may even be a better model than blogs in the long run, you know, where you're able to have this sort of gatekeeper, expert, peer-review system before before something sees the light of day, but you also have this broad base and instantane- capability for instantaneous feedback that are, that are provided by a commenting system. Um, I think... At least it's it, it, it's going to be a stepping stone where people are uh, more actively engaged in these types of systems uh, where, like, I might go on and comment on someone else's paper through that system, and then once I get in the habit of doing that, then I might be more able to give uh, peer-reviewed feedback with just the commenting system. That's, that's the worst-case scenario. The best-case scenario is that becomes the new paradigm. Um, and we don't we don't switch over to a blogging system when we have sort of the best of both worlds. I think I, I would encourage people if they if they have something that's appropriate for those journals to to think about submitting there. Uh, Colin Goldblatt and Kevin Zonley submitted a really good paper to one of those journals about a year ago about the I believe the origins of the moon and uh, proposing a new naming scheme for the proto moon and the proto earth objects. And I encourage people to check it out because it's both a good paper and it's published through this really good system. Well, maybe one other question that, that struck me is um, how much of this do you think will, will just change with generations? Sort of our generation's ease of use of technology contrasted with our our uh, our advisors and superiors, maybe aversion to new technology, at least to some extent. Um, I mean, has, has blogging just not caught on Quickly, because well, they're older. Well, I think, I think right. I think this is a, what I'm essentially calling for here. When I think, what, I think most people on, that are in our generation, or a lot of people in our generation, would agree with the, the things that we've been talking about. Um, but the issue is, it, it's really going to require a culture change within the scientific community, um, and that culture change, a lot of times, is just really going to take time because. You both have people uh, of a generation ahead of us that don't aren't used to these tools, uh, might not understand why they're useful, might not understand 
that um, the that doing things in a new way is going to improve the system. Uh, and frankly, just in the same way as people come to baseball analysis or come to climate change or come to the topic of evolution with preconceived biases, a lot of times people in academia, when it comes to changing their culture, also are are strongly beholden to the status quo, to the system as it currently exists. And so we may not be able to get our advisors or our former advisors to adopt these sort of new techniques and new new ways of aggressively and quickly communicating science. Um, so it is going to take a culture shift, and that might just take time. So the one thing I would emphasize is it won't work even with time unless we get involved in doing these things now. So if we don't, if, if we sort of let the preferences of the people above us and that are uh, have gone before us to dominate our activities while we're young, we're just going to perpetuate the cycle. And then we're going to buy into this uh, a, a sort of traditional system that doesn't value communication enough, in my opinion. And we're going to get into the place where our advisors or former advisors are now, where we're telling our graduate students, look, communication's great, but you really shouldn't shouldn't spend too much time on it because that's not what's going to get you a job. I think we have to start doing this while we are early career because otherwise we're just going to, I, I think, if you don't do it early, there's two questions. One is when have you published enough to start communicating? And, and the answer is never because even Carl Sagan, for as wonderful of a scientist as he was, didn't get into the National Academy because he communicated so much, right? So, there, there will always be another hurdle you can you can jump over as a scientist publishing papers or establishing your academic reputation that people are going to tell you if you want to clear this hurdle, you have to focus on your research, your grants, your papers, and not worry so much about your teaching or communication. There will always be another hurdle. So, you know, the... the, the what I would what I would advise is that don't wait for you you know I, I would tell people don't wait till you get the tenure track position and then you know maybe this is really bad advice on a personal level right I mean I will and actually I will tell you this is if you're listening to this podcast I'm about to give you as an individual really bad advice for your career don't wait for the tenure track position don't wait till you're tenured don't wait until you're a full professor. Don't wait until you're in the National Academy of Sciences. Whatever stage of your career, whatever stage of your career you're at, start communicating science now. Now that's really bad advice for you as an individual, no matter who you are, because someone else is going to be out there not communicating science and spending those hours you're going to spend communicating science on their research. And because we are operating within a system, at least within tra traditional academic bounds, we're operating in a system that values the peer-reviewed research and the peer-reviewed publications and grant, the grant process, right? So, so, in other words, if you and someone else equally talented are out there and you spend time in communication and you both work for the same number of total hours, they're going to end up being a more attractive candidate than you are because they're going to publish more papers and that's what we are rewarding. But I would tell you that I still think it's worth it to communicate, even though it might not be good for you professionally. And, and the reason is a moral one, right? Why are we doing this in the first place if we're not getting our science out there? And furthermore, the more people that do communication, the, the, the less we're going to be penalized as individuals for doing science communication, right? So if everyone out there was doing science communication, at least a little bit, 
then you wouldn't be penalized for doing it because, A, everyone else would be, and so there's not someone out there that's only doing research that's getting ahead of you by focusing on, on, the, on the papers. But, B, that's going to be the, the, the start to change the, the change of the culture. And so I, that's a really long answer to take up the question, and the answer is yes, it's going to take time. We might have to wait for a new generation of scientists to uh, rise up and, and, and change the culture within, within the research uh, field. But that change will only happen if we make a conscientious decision to change the culture before we become too entrenched in it. Sean, this is Sandra again. I completely agree with you, and I am um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen within our generation, particularly in astrobiology, just because we're simply excited about talking about science. So uh, uh, perhaps this field can lead the way. I'm not sure. <laughs> But I wanted to step back a little bit and talk about the, the data for, for a second, in the sense that the reason the baseball has been so successful, as, as you said, is because the baseball statistics, the data is out there for everybody to use, right? But in, in, yeah. in science, this is a little bit more difficult in the sense that, you know, it, it takes a lot of money and a lot of effort to create some data, and I can perfectly understand why some scientists would, would be reticent to making that data available just because it might undermine their own scientific reputation because some others could then uh, scoop them in a sense. You know, so, um, I don't know, do you have some thoughts on how to leverage that? Well, I, th I think the key is, is that we don't necessarily make all the data pub public as we're working on our publications, especially right now when um, the, the, the culture shift isn't really there yet for a lot of, a lot of scientists, and, you know, people can get scooped. Um, like to give you one example, I think the discovery of uh, was it Sharon of, of, of Sharon was that the one that that uh, someone else had. I, there was a recent story I can't remember the exact object, but there was a discovery in the, the outer solar system that drove the change of Pluto from being a planet to being a protoplanet object. And basically, what happened was the, the team that had discovered it put in an abstract saying that they were going to talk about it, hadn't published the paper yet. Another team in another country went and looked at the logs for the first team and saw where they were looking and when they were looking there. Um, essentially got the coordinates for where an object could be, uh, did their own observations, and then scooped the people on the, the publication of the discovery of this object, or at least tried to. And so that is an, a, a, yeah, that's really messed up. So there, there's, a, there's a danger in making, in making your data as you're working on things public. However... I think if, you know, as part of this change, well, I think what has to happen is when we publish something, things have to be public. And uh, what I mean by that is they have to be open access. Uh, and not just the papers themselves, but ideally the data sets as well. Right? I think in an ideal world, when you publish a paper, you should put all your data, including the raw data out there, and the ways that you translate the raw data into something that's um, that whatever's going into the figures of your of your publication, and and honestly, people might sound might seem a little hesitant about that. But if if you're hesitant about that, I I don't to me that not wanting your raw data out there sounds really unscientific to me, right? Because the, the process of translating raw data into whatever you're putting in your figures is part of the scientific process. It's part of your research, and and that should be subject to peer review, just like everything else. So I guess to answer your question, Sandro, I would say not everyone's going to be able to produce data, right, uh, in, in the sciences. But on the other hand, I'm not, I, I can't afford to buy a baseball team either, right? So 
I, well, well, what I can do is I can look back into the baseball records, and I can say, you know, Babe Ruth was awesome at baseball, and this is why he was awesome at baseball, right? And I can I can look back at at, at the data sets that have already been published based on, on past experiments, right? I mean, baseball is sort of an ongoing experiment or a series of experiments. And I, all of the, if you think of the data in baseball as being the results of previous experiments, then I think there's an analogy, but the the... For that analogy to really work, we have to make our data public when we publish our papers. And public means not just putting it in the in the journal, but making it open access. I agree with you. And I, I just want to I want to say one other thing, which I, I meant to leave into my talk, but I forgot to, probably because I'm, I'm a little bit too hot on caffeine right now. Uh, which is there are there are a couple specific activities that I I would love for people to get involved in. Um, what, uh, and on the, the two other handouts that I put out there, I, I forgot to mention. Um, one of them is is this uh, is a basically a Google Scholar search of my last name, Domingo Goldman. Uh, all the all, everything you'll find with that search, I guarantee, is either written by me or my wife. <laughs> um, but it's it, like a few of the papers there. I just put an arrow that pointed at the number of citations, and none of them are above 50. I think they're all like under 40, or most of them are under 20 citations. And then the, the next image is one of the baseball blog uh, articles that I wrote where I got like 500-something comments. And that, I want to make two points with that. One is is that people really do care about this stuff. It's another piece of data for that. And, and, and the second is to reemphasize that um, the part of the reason there's more comments on the baseball blog is because of this, this really good peer review, what I consider to be a good uh, and efficient peer review system. Um, and, and the thing that, that I want to... I want, that I want to use that as like a, a, as a bridge to, which is a discussion of Pale Blue Blog, which uh, was mentioned in the introduction uh, to, to this. Now, Pale Blue Blog is a blog about astrobiology, about the blue marble, about earth sciences and space sciences. But I want uh, the vision for that. I started this blog a few months ago with a couple of uh, other members from BMSIS um, and a couple other people that are not in BMSIS. At any rate, the, the vision for the blog is that we are going to have a community of science communication. Uh, and, and if you are at a computer, I, I would ask you, you don't have to do it now, you can do it later. If you listen on the podcast, hit pause. Go to these three websites. Go to believecubbyblue.com, which is uh, one of the baseball blogs that I will write at when I have time, which is almost never. Uh, go to a site called Daily Coast, uh, daily as in you do something daily, coast as in KOS.com. And go to a, a blog called redstate.com. Red is in the color that Republicans have on the map when they win a state, and state is in they're turning those states red. Uh, Bleed Cubby Blue is a sports blog about the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Daily Coast is a political blog with an, uh, a left-wing standpoint on things, and Red State is a political blog with a, a right-wing uh, take on things. And, and I, I would ask people to go there because all three of these sites, and they're not the only three, but they're the three examples that I'm most familiar with, are blogs where there's sort of a main content site, and the political blogs, uh, the main content is, the, is the, the main frame on the left side of the screen, uh, and Believe Cubby Blue is, is sort of down the middle. And, and that's where sort of the people that run the blog and that regularly write for the blog, uh, uh, th that's where their stuff gets published. But that's not why I want you guys to go there. The reason I want you to go there is on the right side of all three of these websites, there are, is a separate section uh, on the sports blogs, it's called fan posts, and I think on the political blogs, it's called diaries or something like that. At any rate, on the right side, it's essentially a place where anyone can go on and submit their own content. 
and have it associated with this main blog site. And the vision that I that, that I had when I started Pale Blue Blog was to do this for astrobiology and, and Earth and space sciences and planetary sciences. Because if you have a subject that people are passionate about, I fundamentally believe that if you give them a venue to talk about it, they will talk about it. And if you give them the opportunity to post their own work, they're going to buy into the community that that is built around the website. And I, I would argue that, that all three of those websites have a bigger buy-in from their community than a traditional blog where it's one or a handful of experts blogging about a particular topic. Because if you get, if you get feedback on your ideas from those experts, if you interact with those experts and they're saying, hey, your idea is really cool too, you're going to start to feel like you're a part of what they're doing. And that's really, really powerful because now they're, they, they believe that the, the website is almost a community that they are a part of. And they're going to spend more time there. They're going to spend uh, more mental energy digesting the things that you say on the blog and that other people say on the blog. Uh, and I, I think if we can get that type of atmosphere, that really uh, uh, almost communal sense uh, built up around astrobiology and planetary sciences, and not just amongst people doing research, but amongst non-researchers as well, that really, in my mind, is going to help our, 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 our capability to communicate with others. Uh, because now you have a really broad base of communicators. It's not just the researchers, not just the, the people who are professional and uh, professionals in education and public outreach, but now you're giving a place where average, everyday people can come and be a part of the conversation and spread the gospel, so to speak. Um, and so for Pale Blue Blog, what I would love is we're about to do a relaunch of the site within the next couple of weeks, and we're going to have a place where people can contribute their own blog posts on Sidebar, just like you would on Blue Cubby Blue or Daily Coast or Red State. And what I would love is for the people in BMSIS or anyone listening to this podcast to come onto the blog and share your thoughts. You know, I, honestly, I don't even really care if you read what I write on the blog. What I really want is I want to read what you're writing and what you're thinking about. And this goes for researchers. If you're going to the Origins of Life meeting, we have it set up by the next You know, the things you're learning there or at SciCon or just in your daily research. And if you're not a scientist and you're listening to this podcast, but you think astrobiology and the search for life in the universe is interesting, or you're worried about climate change and you want to see uh, what NASA is doing and what planetary science is doing, if you're interested in these things, just come. Uh, read what other people are talking about and, and then come and, and, and talk yourself and, and, and start participating and, and help build up what I hope is going to be a really cool community. So that's one thing I want to just plug at the end. And the other thing is FameLab. I know I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of the people in BMSIS about it, but if you're a researcher, uh, come to one of these FameLab preliminaries. And I know that a lot of people in this particular group are a little uncomfortable competing in FameLab, which is, uh, for those that don't know, it's a science speaking competition modeled loosely after, like, an American Idol or a America's Got Talent competition where you do an elevator talk, you get three minutes to present a scientific concept to a general public audience. I, I would love it for everybody that's listening to this to participate in one way or another. Uh, you can you can you can compete uh, through an online YouTube submission. I would really love it if you came to one of our regional preliminaries. Our first one is next Friday in Houston. Uh, we also have one next month in Denver and one the following month in the Washington D.C. area. Uh, if you come, you're going to learn a lot. This is not just a competition; it's a training workshop. We're going to talk about blogging. We're going to talk about twittering. We're going to talk about uh, uh, getting up on stage and talking about science. We're going to talk about interacting on an individual level with people. On, on time. We're going to talk about it all. And, and so view this not just as a competition, but as a training workshop. And I know that, in particular, some of the people on this call 
are a little nervous about competing in an event like this. And I would, I would implore you to come and participate in the event anyways because I still think the training would be valuable even if you don't, even if you're uncomfortable uh, competing in, in the competition side of it because of biases or whatever or conflicts of interest. Um, so those are the two things. That my my over caffeinated spiel. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Sean. I, that was very enjoyable. I, I definitely learned a lot from that. Um, I think everybody else did as well. Did anyone else have anything to add? Otherwise, I think we're about at our time. Okay. Well, thanks again, Sean. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, everybody who's tuning into the podcast, and we will talk to you all next month. Okay, talk to you later, everybody. Bye-bye. Private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.